Hey, good morning, folks. It's good to see you all. Feeling a bit hot? Stuffy, isn't it? It is definitely warm. It's lovely to see you all, and welcome to friends and family of Dan and Amy. It's so lovely having you with us as well. For those who don't know me, my name is Matt. I am one of the pastors here. If we could bring up the um, uh, PowerPoint, that's amazing. So you join us, or for those that come regularly, we are now on... The third church in our series of letters, seven letters written by Jesus, the resurrected, powerful and glorious Jesus, who met with John on the island of Patmos in a vision. And John dictated these letters to these specific seven churches in modern-day Turkey. And we are on the third uh, letter now, and there is just as much to speak to us as there was to the church back then. So before I start, I'm just going to pray very simply. Lord, in this moment we say, please come and help us. Come by your Holy Spirit, however we're feeling this morning. If we're filled with faith or we're not sure quite what we're doing here, Lord, come and meet with us. Speak to our hearts and show us your glory and goodness, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Do get your Bibles out if you have Bibles with you. If not, you might have a Bible app on your phone. If not, you can Google Revelation space 2 and up it will pop on your uh, screen and we're going from verse 12. Um, So if you want to follow along, I will be referring to all sorts of bits and pieces. I'll try and keep it pacey and try and keep you engaged on a warm and muggy day. We need to turn the aircon down or up and... We don't have aircon, don't worry, that is a, it's a massive shame. <laughs> Church meeting, next one, yeah. <laughs> okay, um, who here likes watching movies at home? Anyone like doing that? Yay, I love a little movie. Who here, let's just see your hands, like movies at home yet? Yeah. Who here, keep your hands up, keep your hands up, keep your hands up if you really love watching movies at home with somebody who talks all the way through. <laughs> 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 is it you? It's stand up, Mark. It's Mark, everyone. He is that guy. It's easily done, though, isn't it? The other agrees. Thank you. It's easily done, though, isn't it? You're watching a movie, and they're all sat around the dinner table in the movie chatting, and it's a little bit warm, and you just very gently begin to nod off, and your mind wanders. And all of a sudden you wake up and they're running down the street being chased by wild gorillas and you're like, what on earth is going on? Where did the gorillas come from? What has happened? And everyone goes, shh. Or even worse, you enter the sacred space of a room filled with people who've watched a movie almost to the end. And you walk on in. Here you go. And you sit down and you go, Oh, what's going on here then? And they're shh. So why are they in this coach? And what's all that gold doing? Shh. Why is the coach wobbling off the shh? Sometimes we miss things. And then we don't have a clue what's going on. And I think, actually, the end of this letter can feel a little bit like this. I don't know if you noticed it. Um, I think it's got the most unusual ending of all the letters. Jesus says this in it. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. And you go, hey, did I miss something? A white stone, is that what? It's 
It's one of those ones where we go, hmm, I don't really know what that means. I need to dig into this. And I've done a bit of digging this week, and I want to tell you, it's an extraordinarily beautiful thing right at the end of this letter. It's rich and it's profound. Would you like to know what it is? I will tell you. (laughs) At the end. (laughs) So no dozing off. (laughs) Okay, no dozing off. Actually, you can doze off. Just wake up at the end. Whoa, what's going on? Oh, the stone. It's going to be fine. Okay, so we're in Pergamon this week. It's uh, uh, Turkey. And here it is, ancient Pergamon. Quite a helpful drawing that. I'm glad that one exists. Just look at the hustle and bustle. It's an extraordinary place to behold, a place of utter wonder, bustling with activity and visitors. And yet, and Tina really emphasised it, you may have noticed Jesus gives this place one of the most uncomfortable descriptions. You go, ooh, is that okay to say? Jesus says this is the place where Satan has his throne. The enemy, the devil, the liar. You see, Dominating the entire city was this great Acropolis, which basically means a huge hill. And it was rising up over a thousand feet above sea level, and it was literally covered in temples. You can see this is a drawing of what it might have looked like. It was a place which offered you everything you might think of. And amazingly, today, so many of the ruins are still intact. I want to go. I have decided I'm going to Pergamum. Look at this. This is just some. I could have filled slides. We could have had one of those old-fashioned holiday slideshows and we could have been here for three quarters of an hour. And this is me next to the, the old temple. Here are some of the photos um, of some of the stuff that's still there. Because basically, this gives us an extraordinary glimpse into the grandeur of the temples, which once would have attracted tens upon tens of thousands of visitors who came to enjoy festivities and seek the favour of the gods back then. If it's wisdom you're looking for, folks, then head on over to one of the most ancient temples, the Temple of Athena, the goddess of wisdom. And if it's a crop you need, your harvest you want to pray about, then the Temple to Demeter was definitely going to be your pick. Here, the goddess of agriculture could be wooed into blessing your fields. But what if you just wanted to have some fun, hey? To soak in the atmosphere, lose yourself for a while, well... If the 10,000-seater theatre, you can see it up there, absolutely extraordinary. If that doesn't float your boat, or if perchance it is full and there is no room, then you can head over and feast your senses at the temple of Dionysus, the god of wine, of joy, of grapes, of sex, of ecstasy. Join in with the drunken orgies, the gluttonous feasts, the wild experiences that were on offer. What if your marriage is struggling? or you long for children, or a blessing on your family, then the temple to Hera, the goddess of the heavens and marriage and childbirth, was where you wanted to head. What if you were sick, or someone you know was sick? Head along, like so many others, to one of the star attractions, folks. The temple of Asclepios, the snake healer. After being induced into a trance in a dark room, they'd release snakes to crawl over your body, and to bring mystic healing. Hmm. And if that wasn't enough, if you really needed something happening, then why not head over to the boss himself, Zeus, the head of the pantheon of the gods. And his enormous altar dominated the skyline. Here it is here. Believe it or not, that is that was dug up in the 1890s from Pergamon and reconstructed 
in the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. You can actually go and see the altar to Zeus in Berlin if you fancy going to do that. If no one else could help you, surely Zeus, the one with all the power, could. To encounter the gods of wisdom and provision and family and joy and healing and power and head on over the ancient Pergamon. Come and join the all-night festivals and banquets, the orgies with food and wine. Come and seek spiritual experiences and miracle cures from the gods and come and experience pleasure beyond your wildest dreams. It's like an ancient form of Disneyland or Glastonbury Festival just without Mickey Mouse or Ed Sheeran. (laughs) With all this pagan and spiritual stuff going on, it's no surprise that Jesus calls Pergamon the place where Satan has his throne. And yet there may be another reason why Jesus uses this particular phrase. Pergamon was also the most significant place of Roman power in the whole region. You see, if the ancient gods don't fulfill your every need, then there was one other significant offering at Pergamon, and that was to turn to the temples of the deified Roman emperors, Augustine or Trajan, Their temples sat there in all their glory. These once mighty emperors, who although now dead, you could go and worship and ask for them to bring peace and prosperity in your lives. And these Caesars were called Lord and Saviour and God. See, the book of Revelation makes it clear that whilst Rome may have been a physical and human empire, behind it lay principalities and powers of spiritual significance of spiritual darkness. John's unembarrassed to say that Satan was using Rome to dominate and control and oppress people, in particular to crush the followers of Jesus. And in many ways, we can understand the Roman Empire a little bit like a mockery of God's kingdom breaking in. The Roman Empire bought the Pax Romana. You may have heard of it. It is the peace that Rome brought and the prosperity that Rome brought, but it bought it through subjugation and through violence and through fear rather than the kingdom of God, which brings peace through love and blessing and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Its leaders are now considered gods. Furthermore, Pergamon had become a Roman powerhouse. Once it was the capital of its own kingdom, the kingdom of Pergamon, only only just a, less than a century before this letter. For 150 years, it was the kingdom ruled by the Attilad kings. It was proud and powerful, and the kings sat on a throne in Pergamum. Now, it became part of the Roman Empire, and the Romans did the same thing. They kept the throne, and they put a proconsul in, the most powerful ruler in all the area. And as he walked through the streets, in front of him, a huge sword would have been paraded. No, it wasn't Penny Morden carrying it. <laughs> it. did remind me, it's the same symbol, the sword going in front of the king. The sword was carried to remind people that the proconsul has the power to wield the sword. You don't disagree, otherwise you die. Perhaps this is another reason why Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. And yet amidst all this spiritual darkness and power and authority and control, here in Pergamon was a group of faithful followers of Jesus 
in the light of all this grandeur and power and temples and spiritual darkness, this group of believers dared to believe that a little-known carpenter from Nazareth was actually the one and only true God. They believed that he alone was more powerful and more wonderful than anything the whole world or the whole of Pergamon could offer you. They had discovered that if it's wisdom you need, and look to Jesus, whose wisdom personified, if it's provision you need, then turn to the one who made the heavens and the earth. If it's true relationship, family, if it's joy and fullness of life, if it's healing or power to raise you to new life, the one that you've been searching for, then come to Jesus, one who holds all things, heaven's bounty in his hands. If you seek healing and power, then come to the true and only Lord and Saviour, the one true God before whom there is no other. Turn to Jesus, they discovered. And all the hollow feelings that they were left as they sought the temples and the feasts and the orgies, they realised nothing was truly meeting their need. They discovered all of it and more in Jesus Christ. God's Son, who loved us so much, he died for this world that hates him so often, so much. And friends, I just want to say to you, it's exactly the same today. If you're looking for these things, don't look anywhere else. Found in Jesus and in him alone is the only name by which we can be saved. Lord, Saviour, God, brother, friend, companion on the journey. Jesus. And yet holding on to Jesus was costly for the folks at Pergamon. We read Antipas. Perhaps their beloved leader, I guess, of the church was already dead. My guess is he may have been killed by the people as the Christians would have refused to have gone in the temples or join in the feast, but there's a chance that very sword that was carried in front of the proconsul was the very sword that was used to behead him or to kill him. And Jesus says to this little church, he reminds them, if you're fearful of that sword, don't forget who I am. I'm the one whose word is like a double-edged sword. My word cuts through all falsehoods and injustice and will fight against every evil with truth and power. This alone comes from the word of God, the voice of Jesus. Friends, take a moment to reflect with me. It's easy to see there were significant spiritual battles going on in Pergamon. Anyone could see it with their own eyes, but... I think it's easy for us to forget that we're in a spiritual battle today. Often we think of our faith as purely personal. But actually one thing that Revelation does and opens our eyes up to is this hugely bigger story of a cosmic battle. It tells us of a world that's fallen, is under the influence of spiritual powers that seek to kill and steal and destroy. Jesus tells us there is an enemy, Satan, and his one desire is to turn us from worshipping the one true God, 
to turn us from being set free and to keep us enslaved to greed and distraction and pleasure and self-centeredness. And in rich metaphorical language, John tells us that in the end, Satan will be cast down and he will not win. Jesus Christ, bearing the sword, will win. But it also warns us that right now we're in the midst of this cosmic battle. Satan still has power to manipulate and to cause great damage in the meantime. Not just to individuals, but also within structures like the Roman Empire that are unjust and violent and dominating and controlling. And friends, can we not see it in all of the pain and greed and violence and dominance and confusion in our world today, caused by governments and leaders and dictators and powerful voices and businesses and lobby groups? Friends, we're not to become super paranoid. Satan's lurking behind every rock. Seeing anything that's not explicitly Christian as evil. No, there's so much good and beauty in this world. God's involved in all sorts of ways that we don't understand. But we're called not to be naive to the reality of spiritual forces that are at work in our world. That we're part of this great cosmic resistance to bring about God's kingdom of justice and peace and truth. Paul put it this way, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Creech may not seem like much of a Pergamum today. I don't know about you, but I haven't spotted any ancient temples or any massive altars to Zeus hanging around in Taunton or even in uh, the surrounding area. But we do need to be aware that we're in a spiritual context and battle and there are things today in our world that are empowered by spiritual forces that seek to bring division and pain and evil and harm and hurt and distraction to not just God's people but to everyone. In our country, we may not have these altars We do have columns, don't we? Outside our big central banks. We have towering, shining glass, high-rise business headquarters. Huge, dominating stadiums of pleasure and sport. We have uh, luxurious doors spinning into premium hotels and gleaming logos of apples and other things on shop signs and phones and on bags. And we have the darkened windows and bright neon lights of the casinos and the large palaces of royal and political power and newspaper headquarters and social media giant headquarters and technology headquarters and military flyovers and parades. Perhaps the gods of wisdom and provision and joy and pleasure and power aren't quite so far away as we might think. They might just look a little different today. I'm not saying all these things are evil, folks. I'm not. But I'm saying we should have our spiritual eyes open. Are we holding fast to Jesus amidst all the powerful dynamics competing for our attention in life today? Do you sometimes forget that we're in a cosmic battle? What do you think are today's temples behind which spiritual dynamic is sometimes at work? I haven't got time to answer that, but I leave that one with you. Okay, I want to speed up here. I want to talk to you about Pergamum and the church there because most of the Christians there went, well, we know what to do. We just avoid this stuff. We know it's not good for us. 
But not everyone thought that way. They had a different opinion. Jesus said this, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some amongst you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. seems that the Christians at Pergamon, some of them were listening to the wrong voice, to the wrong teaching. The teaching of Balaam, who basically, in the Old Testament, enticed a country to uh, the Moabites to tempt Israel into sleeping with the temple prostitutes, offering them the feasts and the riches of pagan sacrifice, and Israel fell for it. And Balaam probably said, hey, it's good to have peace together, isn't it? To share together in all of this stuff, rather than animosity. And sadly, it seemed that some in Pergamon taught similar ideas They probably said that Jesus was Lord, but it's also good to get other insights and explore the cultural offerings, broaden our experiences more than what just Jesus can offer. They might have known it was frowned upon by some Christians, but as long as they didn't harm anyone, surely it's not a problem. Besides, isn't it a good thing to make friends with our pagan community and to join in and share in their practices and lives? And then there's the teaching of the Nicolaitans. I think... We're not quite sure what it is, but I think it was a little more subtle, the compromise. For these people, Jesus was definitely Lord, but they understood that meant that we're not under any laws anymore, and it doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter who we sleep with. It doesn't matter what we eat or drink. It doesn't matter how we talk or act. It doesn't matter at all, because we're mature Christians, and Jesus is the only Lord, and he'll forgive us any way. None of it can harm us. They're both powerful and subtle arguments, I think. These sneaky compromises. Compromises often are. If they didn't have a ring of truth about them, I don't think anyone would fall for them. You see, they take some of the truth of Christianity, but just twist them a little bit, and they add a different voice. The voice of Balaam or Nicholas. Voices that take the truth and twist it to make it more palatable. I'm sure they got lots of nods from respected Christians of the day. Yes, very sensible seems that the church tolerated these voices and teaching. They said, well, maybe it's okay for some. But interestingly, far from being okay, Jesus says and stands passionately against them. In fact, he says this, repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them, these teachings, with the sword of my mouth. He literally says he will war against them with his word, not a physical war, but a war of truth, of teaching truth, of believing truth, of sitting under the influence of a truthful voice. You see, when Jesus speaks, friends, to any of us, even in this room today, his voice is the voice that brings life. His voice is the voice that brings comfort and healing. His voice is the voice that sets us free, that shows us the way. It's the voice of truth and love and goodness. And it's the voice this world so desperately needs and is so desperately looking for. And maybe you are this morning. And even when he says, don't hold back, keep going, be prepared to sacrifice. I know it's not always easy. Don't give in. Even when he says that, it's always for our good. And he's working out our eternal redemption as he says it.
The great call of Christ to each of us is to repent, to stop listening to the other voices, to stop giving allegiance to all these other things and to turn to the one true king and to say, you're my king, you're my God, I'll listen to you and I want to follow you. Your way of love, of grace, of forgiveness, of truth, of justice, holiness. This is the path to joy and to wisdom, to truth, to pleasure, to salvation. This little group of Christians are discovered in the midst of all these offerings in Pergamon. And for those that were compromising, Jesus says, stop, come back, come back. So I want to ask you, what voices are you listening to today in your life, in today's world? There are so many competing voices, aren't there? In fact, probably more now than ever in human history. Just take that in for a moment. You and I, every day we wake up, have to deal with something that people didn't ever have to deal with in the whole of human history. And that is thousands of opinions instantly thrown at us. You just turn your phone on. Thousands of ideas and voices, and this is important, and this is what you should be doing, and this is the way, and this is what you really need to do to be happy, and this will make you feel great, and must stop doing this all over the place. Everywhere, politicians, newspapers, social media, the bloke down the pub, your work colleagues, your student friends at college, wherever it is, the guy behind the meat counter at Morrison's. (laughs) Sometimes it's not clear when what we're hearing, whether it's right or wrong, some of it kind of sounds sensible and you think, well maybe, yeah, that's plausible and reasonable and we begin to form all sorts of opinions based on these voices. Just take, for example, I haven't got time to go in it, the newspapers. If I said to you, hey, which newspaper do you read? Who reads the way? And then, who reads this one? And then everyone goes, what are you doing reading that? You can't read that. And they're like, well, what are you reading that for? We have such differences, even in the voices in the newspapers. For that reason, I read both the Guardian and the Telegraph every day. I look at it. It's said in preachers in the past that we should hold the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other so that we can hear what's going on in the world and what Jesus has to say about it. But the trouble is, which newspaper? because the newspapers themselves have agendas, extraordinary agendas. They're not necessarily Christian in any way, shape or form. On the same day that the Guardian would say the most important thing you should be thinking about, Matt, is the fact that this refugee boat has sunk. The Telegraph is telling me the most important thing, the headline, is that there's a mortgage crisis. And I go, well, which is the most important thing right now? It's not just whether I agree with these papers, it's that they set the agenda of what I'm even thinking about. One of them doesn't mention the other. It's extraordinary. We need to be aware. What are the voices that are influencing us? With social media, just remember, primary, primary, primary reason it exists is to make money. And it does that through getting clicks. It's called clickbait. It will tell you a falsehood that sounds really odd and weird or wonderful, or shocking, just so you go, oh, and you're in. There's another voice. We get befuddled by the garbage. Seriously, I do. We all do. Okay, I brought this with me, and I'm not going to skip it. Here he is. Seen this little guy before? (laughs) This is Wally. Anyone seen the film Wally? It's a brilliant film. If I was going to recommend a film... There you go, there's my recommendation for today. Go on, Wally, you just sit there, little buddy. Um, (laughs) Wally, if you haven't seen it, 
is this cute now, who did that? Wally, very good Dan, Wally, that's how he speaks. Wally is a little rubbish cleaning robot. And the world in the movie of Wally is, this is piles of rubbish. The world is utterly polluted and filled with rubbish. So bad, the humans have had to escape from the world. And they've gone off into quarantine. <laughs> we know what that is. Um, and they've gone off in this spaceship to quarantine in space. And they've left these little, little compressor robots to tidy everything up so that the world could be restored in time for the humans to come back. But the problem is, it was only supposed to be 20 years, but it's been generation after generation after generation and generation. And the, and the ship that they're on, oh, it's an absolute pleasure paradise. Anything and everything you want is met there. The greatest food, the most brilliant service, neon lights, entertainment. You don't even have to walk. You just float around in your chairs everywhere. And all the humans are becoming uh, fatigued and no longer able to walk for themselves or think for themselves. All they get told is, welcome to another day in paradise. Keep enjoying it, keep consuming, keep having fun. But the point wasn't that they were supposed to stay on the ship. The point was that they were supposed to come back to earth. That was the mission. They've all forgotten it. There's this moment where the captain finds the original mission. And the computer that you see there with its eyeball tries to grab it off him. He says, oi, put that away. And the captain looks at the pictures of all the previous captains and in every picture he sees the computer getting closer and bigger and more important and he realises that the computer has wanted them. This isn't against AI, by the way. That's a whole other one. We'll go there another day. <laughs> um, the computer has basically made them forget about the original mission and has just wanted to keep them there because it knows that if they go back to Earth, there's no point in it existing. There's no need for the spaceship of fun anymore. And so it has hidden the original mission and filled them with this voice telling them that it's important just to have fun and rest and relax and enjoy and consume. And eventually the captain wakes up and remembers the original mission to go back to Earth and to repopulate and to see Earth's transformation to redeem the planet. Compromise was so subtle at first, just a little more pleasure until they forgot the main mission. We might say it won't happen to us, we love Jesus. There's so many times throughout history where Christians themselves have been so saturated by culture that we've forgotten the original mission, the kingdom of Jesus, a kingdom where everyone is valued, everyone is loved, where there is peace and joy and goodness, where there is healing and hope for every single person and family, no matter who they are. That's the main mission. But throughout history we've got caught up with the crusades and slave ownership and empire and rule Britannia because that's a Jesus thing. Is it? Not. Eek. Nazi Germany filled with Christians going yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Racial segregation, Rwanda, Russia. People who claim to follow Jesus then committing or supporting evil. But then there have been those who have held to the radical against the tide truth and teaching of the king of kings even when it could cost them everything, Wilberforce, the confessing church in Nazi Germany, Martin Luther King Jr., I could go through them or we could do a study on them. Extraordinary people who heard the voice of Jesus calling them to the original mission. And like a double-edged sword, his truth cut through and brought judgment to the evil at work. Christianity is never supposed to have just been a personal convenient crutch, a comforter, a veneer of private or national respectability. 
respectability, supporting whatever we want to do. It's never supposed to be like that. Our King Jesus stood against the tide and stood for truth, even when it cost him everything. And he calls us to do the same, to stand against the powerful voices all around. It may cost, but we want to still recognize Jesus as Lord. We want to root ourselves in scripture, his word. We want to say in every matter, but what would Jesus say about this? Where's his heart? Where's his voice? Where's his truth? Let's not be naive to this, folks. Let's be passionate about Jesus, because he's the one who has the real hope to transform our struggling world and struggling lives. He wants us passionate and fired up for his kingdom. Marx said, if you've ever read any of Karl Marx, he basically said religion's like the opium of the people, used by powerful uh, rulers just to make everyone go, oh, I feel happy and I'm not going to challenge anything now. True Christianity is the very opposite. True Christianity fires you up, filled with the Spirit of God, to make a difference, to bring hope and purpose. Passionate for Jesus, remembering his kingdom is coming. So I'm going to finish now and we're going to sing to finish in a moment. But I want to finish with this question. Whose voice are you listening to, friends? Maybe you're Christian, but you realise you've kind of let the voice of Jesus go down the pecking order a little bit. Bring it back up. Stuck into his word. Maybe you're not a Christian and some of what I've said this morning is new and you're thinking, oh, that's a bit much, Matt. That's a bit passionate. Am I okay with this? I invite you, just grab a Bible if you can. We've got some here. Take it back. Begin to read about Jesus. Open the New Testament. Ask someone if you don't know where to start. Start in the book of Mark. Just open it and see what Jesus was like. And discover for yourself the difference he makes in your life and in this world. Because Jesus says, for those who overcome, and yes, we can go back to the stone now, and I can tell you what it is. Firstly, he says, I'll give you some hidden manna. He's referring back to the manna that came from heaven to the Israelites in the wilderness. He's saying, heaven's resources will be yours. Heaven's resources will be yours. Forgiveness and peace. Strength and courage. Nurture. Forgiveness. Heaven's resources. You don't need the feasts of the pagan gods. I'll give you a feast. And it will satisfy like nothing else does. And then he says, I'll also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. And as I studied this, I was just blown away by what a white stone meant in ancient society. In a trial, an individual would be given at the end of it by the juror a stone, a black one, if they're found guilty, a white one, they're forgiven or acquitted or declared innocent. Innocence. Also, two friends would break a stone and give one half to each. Like a friendship locket. Like, you know the ones that you can buy in Argos? <laughs> Ancient. You probably don't want to hang one of these around your neck. But it gave you permission to enter their home and their house and their life. To be part of the family. Family. Relationship Jesus offers. A stone with a name written on it was also an invitation to an exclusive banquet. An exclusive party. 
sorry, you can't come in. We don't have a list, but you don't have a stone with your name written on it, with the password on it. Jesus says, I'll give you a stone. And it will let you into heaven's riches and glory, into the kingdom where there is no more tears, where no more illness, where every tear is wiped away. Forgiven, loved, invited to heaven's feast. And the stone was also given to the winners of the games, the victors. Maybe Jesus is giving us a stone to say, do you know what? You've been victorious. You've overcome in a world that's hard. And I know for some of you this morning, your context is hard. Maybe your marriage is hard. Maybe work context is hard. And you think, I'll just keep my head down. Jesus says, hold fast. I'm with you. Have courage. Don't compromise. Finally, he says, I'll write a name on it. A new name for you. He liked doing that. Peter, who was wobbly and unsure about himself, Jesus called Rock. You're a rock, Peter. Solid. The name was the new character God was working in him. I wonder what the new name Jesus might give you this morning. Friend. Overcomer. Perseverer. Encourager. Beloved. Child of God.